Uh, it's Matthew 6, verse nine, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Bobby, if you want to come on up, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for us this morning. <clears throat> Father, we, we bless you this morning, and we thank you so much for your word, uh, for giving us your son, everything he's taught us um, to pray, how to pray, what to pray, uh, how to approach you. Um, God, I lift up Bobby this morning. God, would you have already been working in the preparation that he's put into today? Would you give him the words that he needs to speak, words that will edify us uh, and point us to your son, Jesus. Transform us by your word. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if this has already been said. I, I've heard some people, like, towards the end of the prayer, like, where's the end of the, the, end of the Lord's Prayer? Um, and, and I admit that I actually didn't realize this myself until uh, a few weeks back as I looked into it. The, the end of it, the um, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever, is uh, not part of the original Lord's Prayer um, as recorded by the Gospels, and so it's rightly left out of the Gospels. It is a later addition, not to the Bible, but as a doxology in response to it by the church. And so very early, the church added this sort of ending doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever. I can't remember if that's already been said, but I just wanted to kind of clarify that in case you were like, why do they keep cutting off the end? What, why did Matthew forget what he said? Um, so the verses we're going to focus on today, uh, because we read all of it, is uh, the part that says, forgive us our debts, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then also we'll talk about those last two verses that Aaron read for us, um, which are jarring words, perhaps. But uh, forgiveness, let's talk about it. Uh, forgiveness in my estimation, appears to have sort of fallen out of favor in our culture. Um, the new kid in town is justice and accountability, and I certainly don't scoff at that. These are good things. Revealing truth, calling out evil, is godly. It's good. But in our culture, today, it seems that the person who decides to forgive another person or who asks for forgiveness um, is maybe seen as weak or naive. Maybe a, a better or a more popular motto that we all feel is make them pay. Now, forgiveness has uh, made big news recently. I always am interested whenever top, biblical topics show up in the public eye um, in the debate over student loan forgiveness, which is quite interesting. Now, I I'm not, and don't intend to make any specific um, judgments or arguments from the pulpit on fiscal policy or economics, or the authority of certain branches of government. However, um, it's interesting um, listening to the conversations about those who are for and against student loan forgiveness. You see, um, there's a specific group of people who, by and large, tends to be for it. Um, if, you, if you zoom in on the people who owe student loans and can't quite afford them to pay them back, they, I am they, just I have lots of them. Uh, we tend to be for it, right? Because we need forgiveness, right? 
Um, and then probably a more objective crowd is those who don't have uh, debt or never did. And it's a rather split decision on that. But you see, this tends to be the cultural direction our culture takes. We desire it when we need it, when we find ourselves in a place where we can't afford to pay back a debt, but we expect others to pay their debts, their debts to us, their debts to society. Again, I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a cultural judgment. Well, depending on how you view the topic, uh, I have some good or perhaps some bad news for you. God's kingdom is filled with forgiveness. It's the air we breathe in Christianity. Former President Trump famously once said when he was asked if, he've, if he's ever asked God for forgiveness, that's a hard question. I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. If I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Uh, then he goes on to talk about how he does participate in communion, though. When I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, I have my little cracker. I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness. I do that as much as possible because I feel cleansed. What's interesting to me is his initial instinct that forgiveness, that's, that's a hard question. Well, for me, it's not. I don't find it that hard. I feel like I need forgiveness just about every day. But I think it's still an honest assessment that he makes that forgiveness is hard. His soul recoiled at the question, right? Because asking for forgiveness admits that we're weak. It admits that we're indebted to someone else. It admits that we're flawed, that we're not powerful. Forgiveness, especially when we ask or beg for it, wounds our pride. This is why a proud, arrogant man like Donald Trump, and like so many of us, have a hard time asking for forgiveness. It's pride. And you know, your pride may be deceiving you today if you have a hard time asking to God for forgiveness, or asking God or asking one another for forgiveness. So today we're going to do two things. We're going to look at, first, how forgiveness impacts our prayers and how God demands that we forgive one another. So prayer, that's really the context of what we're talking about today, of course, right? Jesus is saying, pray then like this. How do I pray? And then he gives us the words to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He wants us to say those words. They mean something. They should mean something when we say them. So here's, here's my argument. It's that effective prayer requires forgiveness. Effective prayer requires forgiveness. Another way to say it is an open circuit of communication requires the grounding of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness breaks the circuit. Or if electrical metaphors aren't your thing, let's try a cell phone metaphor. If you wish to speak to the Lord over the phone line of prayer, requires the cell signal, the cell tower of forgiveness, lest your call be dropped. Forgiveness is a important part of the equation where we would communicate with God and he would communicate with us. So I'm going to unpack that for you, what I mean by that. But first, 
Like always, we should define terms. Forgiveness is not an easy term to understand. Most of us throughout our life have had a fairly simplistic understanding of forgiveness. Those of you and those of us, myself included, who have had to forgive people in very difficult things, who have struggled to forgive people who have abused us, traumatized us, sinned against us in very violent ways, many of us have tasted the complexity and the nuance and the difficulty and the suffering associated with forgiveness. If that's not you today, if you feel, I don't have any trouble forgiving people, you will one day, you will. And I wanna prepare you. I wanna, we want to build a resilience for forgiveness. We wanna build a culture, an air of forgi- forgiveness because one day you will be sinned against and it will happen likely more than once and it will hurt and you will need something to draw upon. So what is forgiveness? I'm gonna lean a lot on this first section on Tim Keller. Uh, he has a great book on forgiveness that I'll, I have the title in here, I'll, I'll give it to you in a moment. But here's how he defines forgiveness. Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. So let's break down a little bit what he means by that. Notice here that Jesus uses this financial language, the language of debt and debtors here when he's talking about forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In this case, he's not saying literally forgive financial debts to people who owe you money. Although the Bible does have a biblical ethic for forgiving debts, for not charging interest, there's lots we could say about that. I, there's really just no debate here amongst, amongst scholars. He's not talking about financial debt. He's using financial debt as a metaphor to talk about sin to talk about the debt owed when one is sinned or transgressed or trespassed against. Luke actually, in his retelling, interprets it as forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, those who trespass against us or something like that. But it's uh, it's a helpful word to use, the idea of debt. And so I wanna ask why does Jesus use that word for debt rather than sin or trespass or transgression? No doubt, those are what are all implied in what we must forgive. Forgive trespasses. It's likely because debts carry with them that word, the reality that when you sin against someone, you owe them something. Of course, we sort of instinctively know this. We use phrases like, I owe you or I owe them an apology. But it's more than that. When we harm someone, we owe recompense. We owe them our remorse, our sorrow. We owe justice, whatever that looks like. Namely, though, that we will suffer in some commensurate way with what we did. Furthermore, there's an aspect of that debt that is always unpayable. If I harm something in your heart, if I break something in you, what can I do to pay it back? What what dollar bills pay that off? No money cannot buy forgiveness, but a debt is still owed, a very costly debt. So let's just go over a few examples maybe to make this more clear. Um, If I were to borrow your lawnmower, somebody borrowed mine, this exactly happened, so this is personal for me. Um, Actually, they paid for the debt, they're in this room, you know who you are. 
they were great. I'm just using it. They borrowed my lawnmower, and they accidentally damaged the blade. That happens, they hit a giant rock or something. Um, if they chose to for, or if I chose to just forgive them for this, that $100 debt doesn't just go away. I have to pay for the replacement, or perhaps put in the labor and the time to repair it myself. Now, let's take it a little bit more seriously. If I were to get into an argument with you, uh, and get angry, and punch a hole in your wall out of anger, that would be a sin against you, no doubt. In that case, there would be a debt to pay off, first, in the form of an apology or my remorse. More than that, there is a, still a literal hole in your wall that requires repair. There's labor and materials that are owed to you. But in doing so, there's perhaps another type of damage which needs repair. It's possible I've traumatized you, I've frightened you, I've stolen from you some sense of peace. I don't, you may not want to be around me, you may be afraid of me. I've stolen your peace, your peace of mind. And beyond this, perhaps I stole the joy of our friendship. I've damaged our relationship. What can I do to pay that back? There is a debt that I owe that is beyond what the debt is that I simply punched in the wall. In this case, some of the debts are payable, right? I could fork over the money, the time, the labor, whatever, to fix your wall. I could sincerely apologize. But in some sense, you would be right to hold this over my head, to punish me by withdrawing from my, your friendship with me, by calling me out, by, I mean, of course, making me pay for it, by perhaps ending our friendship, by telling others how angry I am and how that I was dangerous and I did this. You could spread words about the truth of what I've done. That's only fair. But there's no way for me to pay that off easily. In fact, it might be impossible. If you choose to forgive me, in that case, you're absorbing both the physical cost of the hole in the wall, but more importantly and more deeply, the emotional and spiritual pain that I caused. You are choosing to overlook that and deal with the pain that I caused you by, by you know, loving me and staying in some sort of communication with me, not making me pay for it, not holding it over my head. My head. But, but this is so important. I think this is the piece that's missed um, so often. And it's what, I love it when what Keller says here. Forgiveness is voluntary suffering. Nobody owes you forgiveness, ever. No one owes you forgiveness. It's voluntary. It is given as a free gift, but it's a gift of suffering. Now, this is true to different degrees depending on the type of sin committed, but it's always costly. To quote Keller again, in all cases when wrong is done, there's a debt, and there is no way to deal with it without suffering to some degree. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. It is emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. When you forgive, you pay the debt yourself in several ways. Now, I do want to say, it's easy to sort of oversimplify this. This is complicated. People and relationships are complicated. Blame is complicated. Um, there are other complicated factors in this. Uh, so I, I do want to just kind of make some asides uh, pastorally here. Um, 
some, some of you need time to slowly work through what, is, like, what forgiveness means. If you have been abused or traumatized, I don't want to simplify this for you. Uh, like, you need therapy to walk through this. Find like, a trusted therapist to work through forgiveness in a safe way. It requires the wisdom of, of your church community. Um, like, I, I think it's important to say, and, I, and I'll talk about this more in depth later, that it, forgiveness does not always mean a restored relationship in the same way it was. That's not always healthy. Sometimes people need to go to prison. Um, for starters, I, I did want to recommend by name the book uh, by Tim Keller called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? Forgive, Why Should I? It's a short book that, where he just really kind of lays it out in very practical terms. But there Keller mentions three places or three arenas where forgiveness must be applied. And it's in your interactions with the offending person, in your interactions with other people, and in your own heart. So he mentions that there are a few things that we need to watch out to avoid when we are forgiving someone. These are the things we should avoid. We should avoid, um, again, this is sort of the first part, like directly with the person. Avoid making cutting remarks and dragging out past injuries repeatedly. Avoid being far more demanding and controlling with the person than you were before or than you are with other people. Because deep down you feel they still owe you. Um, or avoid being cold or just avoiding the person altogether. Those are ways that we can, even if we say we forgive, that we can sort of still not truly forgive someone. Second, he says we should apply forgiveness in our communication with others. To forgive, he says, you must avoid innuendo or spin or gossip or slander to diminish those people in the eyes of others. It's not forgiveness to run people down under the guise of warning people about them or under the guise of seeking sympathy and support and sharing your hurt. Again, I'm going to keep just sort of saying, like, there are limits to this. There are, th like, there are things where you need safety, so don't. Like, we're talking about the, the normal, everyday forgiveness that, we, um, that we're called to. Second, we apply forgiveness in, uh, or um, third, we apply forgiveness in our hearts. To forgive is to refuse to indulge in ill will in our hearts. That is, do not continually replay the tapes of wrong in your imagination in order to keep the sense of loss or hurt fresh in your mind so you can stay actively hostile toward the person and feel virtuous by contrast. Don't vilify or demonize in your imagination. Rather, pray for their good. Don't hope for their pain. Root for their success. That's what, success, or that's what forgiveness looks like in practice. And boy, that's difficult, isn't it? Because it's so easy to say, sure, I forgive you, and think that there's like really nothing else to it but those words. Forgiveness is suffering. It's an ongoing choice. It's not a one-time thing. If you say, I forgive someone, what happens in seven years when you get mad about the thing again? That happens to all of us. It's a continual choice to release someone of the debt that they owe you. I do want to say more specifically what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Now, there may be things for which um, where forgiveness can be extended, but trust cannot. For example, if one of my child's teachers 
physically injures him. I may be called to forgive their teacher, but I'm not going to send my child to that teacher anymore. I don't trust them. Forgiveness is given freely, though costly, but trust is earned. Sometimes trust is lost altogether. There are some people that may not ever be able to be around my children, at least not in private. Now, another way to think of it is every parent has degrees of trust that they give to their children. This is part of what parenting is. We give more and more trust as our children age. And all kids, at times, will break that trust. They will exceed and lose privileges. We're going to withhold. It's not like parents are withholding forgiveness. That would be evil. But sometimes children have to re-earn trust over time, over showing maturity, to gain back trust and certain privileges. Second, forgiveness isn't friendship, necessarily, or intimacy. You're called to forgive everyone who harms you, yes, but you do not need to feel obligated to be best friends with everybody. Even Jesus had his closest friends. Not everyone had access to that degree of friendship while he was on earth that we do now. However, a word of caution about this. There may be a hint if you have a friend, somebody that you love, that you feel like if you break a friendship with them that you've forgiven them but you don't want to be their friends, that might be a clue still that forgiveness has not been offered. With our brothers and sisters, with our friends, with our, the people we're, we're living in, like, in relationship with our family, like, the call is to restore so far that the, the environment is safe, that trust has not been broken, but the goal is full reconciliation. A man may forgive a husband, or a man may forgive a wife who repeatedly commits adultery, but that does not mean he is required to stay married to her. And then lastly, I mentioned this, but I'll say it again, forgiveness doesn't exclude natural punishments and consequences. Much like God tells us to leave vengeance to him and not exact it ourselves, it's often right and good to pursue justice through the criminal justice system. A woman may forgive a man who physically abuses her, but she should not stay with him or need not stay with him or trust him. And she may pursue criminal action for her safety and for the safety of others. These things are not mutually exclusive. Consider the glorious testimony of the survivors of the Emanuel Church shooting. Many were gunned down by white supremacist Dylan Roof. And, you know, this made good news because it was so jaw-dropping. Um, but multiple churchgoers, while in court, while like hoping to see this man be in prison, incarcerated for life, no doubt desiring he pay for his crimes, still offered forgiveness. Nadine Collier, whose, whose own mother was murdered in cold blood at church, just like we are here today, told him to his face in court, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again, and I will never be able to hold her again but I forgive you, and I have mercy on your soul. Powerful testimony of what forgiveness looks like and what it is. Lastly, let me draw your attention to the greatest example of forgiveness in history. You see, it's God's forgiveness, of course, of the sins of the world. Understanding his forgiveness 
really helps us understand the core of the meaning of the cross. You see, God did not just forgive. He absorbed our sin. He became sin, our sin, so that he could absorb our debt, our punishment. He suffered so that we might not suffer. He reconciled us to himself. He took enemies and made them his family, his bride, his beloved. In the cross is the, is the definition of forgiveness. You want to know, like, what's the heart of forgiveness? Why does it matter? Where does it come from? We have to start with Jesus, where God himself says, I'll take this. I'll take this on my shoulder. There is forgiveness, and it was costly. So this is the meaning of forgiveness. Now I want to, now I want to explain its role in prayer. As I said, effective prayer requires forgiveness. What do I mean? Let's read it one more time. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is what he wants us to pray. So first, let's just think about this. The fact, just the reality of prayer itself holds some sort of prerequisite that you're forgiven. You don't get to just walk up to God's throne and say, hey, what's up, how's it going? I have some things I want to talk about. You can't approach him because of the wickedness and because in your heart and the holiness of God. No, he must forgive us that we would approach him. God cannot abide evil. He cannot abide sin. But by forgiveness, he has given us access. So the very act of prayer itself requires him to have forgiven us to truly be heard. So that's what I mean first when I say effective prayer requires forgiveness. It requires forgiveness from God. You see, those who are not forgiven are God's enemies. Their prayers fall upon deaf ears. He turns a blind eye to their cries. But beyond this, Jesus is teaching you and me to regularly ask for forgiveness from God. For forgiveness. Now, If you're a good Protestant, that may sound a little off to your ears. I thought we were already forgiven. Like, is he re-forgiving me every time? That's a fair question. That's not what it means. No, of course. If you're in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. For me, I say, what confidence does that give us to ask the question, God, will you forgive me? You see, no, this is God being gracious to us, acknowledging that daily we fall short, daily we struggle with guilt and shame, and he's saying, come to the fountain of forgiveness daily. Ask. I'm here to give it every day. And so pray, God, forgive me. Lord, forgive my debts. To which he answers to all his children, yes, done. 2,000 years ago, taken care of. Never will bring it up again. Never is he going to hold it before you in court. When you stand before him on the judgment throne, he will not bring him up. That didn't happen. Forgiven, that's how we approach God. But yet the practice is for us. Lord, forgive me. This is how we deal with our shame. Secondly, effective prayer requires forgiveness from us as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, here's, here's what I would have preferred this prayer say. Uh, you know, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts, onward. 
He didn't have to add in the second. Like that's, that, would, that would have been a great prayer, right? Just forgive us our debts. Why doesn't he leave it at that? As we also have forgiven. Why the qualification? As we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, the Christian must pr- pray without hypocrisy, honestly. Of course, he is not saying that we merit our standing before God and, and then he forgives us. That's not what he's saying. That we, for, we receive forgiveness because we forgave others. Yet, he doesn't let the matter stand. Why? Because he's after your heart in prayer. He wants you to dare say those words, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Does that not challenge you right away as the words leave your lips to say, oh, is that true? How many of you have mindlessly spoken the Lord's Prayer in hypocrisy as it was not true? That's the point. That's why he tells us to pray, because it is to search our own hearts. Have we indeed forgiven our debtors? He wants us gripped by his forgiveness. He wants us to be people who forgive others. And so he's not going to turn a blind eye to your unforgiveness, to the bitterness in your heart. He wants to confront it daily. No. He wants his child's heart. And so see the wisdom now of Jesus' words. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. He intends that every time we pray those words, that it would bring to mind every person who's hurt us that we may not have forgiven. Or maybe we have, and yet bitterness comes again. It forces us. It assumes that we have to just go ahead and test our honesty. In fact, it almost demands that we pause before we say the second half of the sentence. Forgive us our debts as... eh, Hold on, there's something else I need to do, isn't there? It almost requires something else, doesn't it? It presumes that we are forgiving others. Why? He will not allow unforgiveness to reign in your heart. That is not what his kingdom is about. Now, this doesn't mean we can't pray if we're struggling to forgive. However, God means for there to be a hindrance in your prayers if you hold bitterness against a brother or sister. He even says, don't take communion, don't act like things are fine when you harbor bitterness against a brother, when you're holding on to forgiveness or if they need, if reconciliation is needed. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to change. He wants you to go deeper into his forgiveness, to understand the depths of how far he's forgiven you that you would that you would in turn display that to the world. And so what do we do? Of course, God knows our hearts. We can't lie to God. And so we let him search our hearts. Practice this. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, and I would suggest praying it daily, really and honestly, pray these words, that they would transform your heart. And then say, Lord, search my heart. Is there anyone I need to forgive? Am I holding on to some bitterness? Is there some sin, some way in me that I am unaware of? Bring it to my mind that I might repent. That's what he's looking for. Now, I know this is hard. 
I certainly wouldn't counsel you to not pray until you've worked out forgiveness. But I would counsel you to take action where action is needed. Now, one thing I would give you advice on, if you are struggling to forgive today, that's okay, that's a lot of us. Go to God for help forgiving. Let this prayer be a ramp to send you into, into pleas for help. God, help me forgive. Help me to have your heart towards these people, towards this person. <clears throat> so this is, I think, the kind of the goal of what God's after with prayer. He wants us to pray in this economy of forgiveness where we're searching our hearts, forgiving one another. So briefly now, I just want to turn to the second part where he clarifies. Verse 14 and 15 are intended to clarify verse 12, the one that I just read. Because Jesus knows those are difficult words, and so here's what he says in verse 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are hard words. Here's what he's saying. If you do not forgive the debt others owe to you, you will pay your own debts. You will suffer in hell forever for your crime if you do not forgive. I'm very tempted now to soften these words, to remove the sharpness of their edge. Jesus did not feel such a need, and so I'm going to do my best to not do disservice to the sharpness of that blade. I do want to make one qualifying point that I've already said. This does not mean that when you forgive others, you earn your forgiveness. Jesus freely offers forgiveness. He earned it on the cross by the way he lived and fulfilled the law perfectly. It's only by faith in Jesus that we're forgiven. That is the testimony of all of scripture. Yet I will let Jesus' words stand again. If you do not forgive others, their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So the question becomes now, what? Why? That is intense. Well, I think there's three reasons, and this is, I'll go through these as quickly as possible so as to not use up too much of more of your time. There's a giant bug up here, sorry. First, this is the nature of his kingdom. This is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. The first reason why we must forgive, why there is an eternal imperative. When God reveals himself to Moses, his name and his glory, he names himself as forgiving. The Lord, the Lord, he says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is part of the king's nature. God is forgiving. He always has been. It's always been in his plan and his design to bestow grace and forgiveness to sinners, to enemies. Thousands of years after that scene, Jesus shows up, the embodiment of God's character perfectly, and what does he do? What does the kingdom look like when Jesus, he just walks around healing sick people and forgiving their sins. That was it, that was his method. 
You're forgiven. Forgiving people, healing them. That was how he brought the kingdom. When he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe and be forgiven. This is the reign of King King Jesus. The kingdom is one of forgiveness and repentance. You see, he knew that forgiveness is what the world needed, and it's the thing that would change the world. How does it change the world? Well, it advances his kingdom through the hearts of men and women. What do I mean? As our hearts are gripped by the king and his forgiveness, we go and we tell others about him, and we show others what he's like, through our forgiveness, through our voluntary suffering, we show people how Jesus absorbs suffering by being forgiving people, by being humble people who admit when we need forgiveness, and by telling others about the reason for our forgiveness. Consider back the testimony of the woman before the court with Dylan Roof. What a testimony did she make to the entire watching world? It was Jesus that did something in her. She was gripped in some way by her beloved Savior crucified for her. That changed her. That made her bold, far more bold than you or I. And that's the kingdom at work, advancing, changing the world, not through the sword, but through forgiveness. We as the church are his ambassadors sent into the world to suffer and to forgive that the world might know him. Second, the second reason that he demands forgiveness from us is because anytime anyone sins against us, the primary party sinned against is God. Anytime we sin, it is first against God. Imagine the following. A young girl has a, a toy stuffy, as my children call them, and they love it dearly. They carry it with them everywhere. They sleep with it. They always ask for it when they feel sad, It's a friend. And one day a kid comes up to them at school, an ornery child, there are plenty of those, that takes the stuffy and cuts it up just to be mean, with scissors. The child gets it stolen and and destroyed, is devastated. They're horrified at the evil of this world. For days on end, they instinctively reach for their stuffy and their wound is reopened. A new stuffy won't fix the wound because it's not just physical pain they feel. They're afraid of that child. They stole their innocence. They have to see that kid at school. Well, one day, after a thorough talking to from his mother, the boy comes to the girl to make amends. He gives her a letter declaring his sorrow, and he gives offers to this girl his favorite stuffy. And she says, I forgive you. You can have it. I want you to have it. And she fully forgives him. She hugs him. Over the course of weeks, she may feel sadness as she lay in her bed. And if you have children, like this is like not unrealistic. I mean, my kids would be devastated by losing their stuffies. But she never lets that sadness spill over onto her friend. She's forgiven him. As the years went on, perhaps their, you know, their friendship grew, and eventually they fall in love. The couple would perhaps laugh about how he bullied her when she was a child. And then one day, the girl's mother mentions that uh, she doesn't really like her new partner. She doesn't approve of him. She's bothered by this. And one day, the young man comes to ask the parents for their blessing to take her hand in marriage. And the mother cries out, 
I cannot, for you are that nasty boy who cut up my daughter's toy those years ago, and I've hated you ever since. The young man is blown away by this. What? Tells the girl, and she's furious and goes to her mother, have you lost your mind? How have you held a sin against this little boy? I forgave him as a little girl. How is it that you hold him? And the mother responds, well, he never apologized to me, and I bought the toy. Now, obviously, this is, uh, this is idiotic. <laughs> but, friends, how inappropriate is it for a minor third party to hold on to a sin where God was offended far worse, where he is already forgiven, and us standing on the sidelines say, well, you may forgive this person, but I won't. You see, I'm not trying to minimize sin, although it may sound like it, I'm trying to maximize your sin and the glory and holiness of God. Listen to what David, David, this, this psalm is just so crazy. Psalm 51. So this is after Nathan the prophet goes to David and he's, he had already done the stuff with Bathsheba. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. All this right here makes sense. A beautiful confession. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, now, how strange is that? He committed adultery with a married woman and then placed a hit on her husband. And then he has the, the audacity to say, against you only have I sinned? There is a whole host of injured parties, families destroyed, is David minimizing his sin? I don't, that's not the vibe that I'm getting here. You see, David sees something about the nature of God. God is so holy, so valuable, that it is not even worth comparing. We cannot measure the two, a sin against a human and a sin against God. This is deep stuff. But say, you know, David knows he sinned against people. The point is he's trying to grasp at the terrifying holiness of God, the horror of breaking his commandments. Because of the infinite value of God and his ownership as our creator, any form of rebellion against him carries a measurable weight. For a mere creature to rebel against the infinite creator for one single time is to be crushed under the white-hot perfection and wrath of God forever just as a mote of dust would be obliterated if it came within 20,000 miles of the sun, so a sinful man, even with just one sin, would be obliterated by the righteousness of God were they to approach him without forgiveness. I apologize for all the water. I'm, I think I might be getting a little sick. But if you were to punch a poor man in the face, he probably couldn't afford a good enough lawyer to bring charges against you. If you were to punch a rich man, or maybe the son of a rich man in the face, he's gonna get a good lawyer and you're probably gonna spend six months in prison for damages. But if you were to punch the face of the son of a great king, you could get your head lopped off. Friends, when you sin against one another, especially a believer, 
You are sinning against the beloved child of God and he is offended because he has imprinted them with his image, with dignity. He has said, these are my sons and daughters, but furthermore, he loves us. He loves his sons and daughters and when you harm them, you harm him so much because he loves us. In in this case, when you approach that king, your only hope is to fall to his feet, to kiss his feet and beg for mercy All sin is ultimately against God. And if God forgives, we must forgive. And lastly, because we have been forgiven so costly a debt for our own sins, the only response can be extending forgiveness. Why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Consider, we're gonna talk about in Matthew 18 when we get there, it's, I don't know, like 20 years or something. Eventually we're gonna talk about this parable Jesus tells us. We're... Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive these guys? Jesus says, well, as many, or he says, as many as seven times? I mean, this guy keeps sinning against me. Jesus says to him, no, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes on to tell a story about a king who goes to collect a man. You guys have probably heard this. Like he collects, he, he's, the king goes to collect a debt of about 10,000 talents, which is absurd. That would be the equivalent to like $6 billion right now. Impossible to pay. And the man can't pay. His family's going to get sold into slavery. And the king has pity. And he, sa- and he forgives this man this absurdly large debt. And then the man turns around. He's a savvy businessman. He's like, actually, I know somebody who owes me a couple hundred bucks. And he goes and he shakes him down, takes him to court, throws him in prison. Even though the guy asked for the same mercy... And then I'll pick up here at Jesus' quote. Here's what Jesus says. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And also, also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, this is our state. You have been forgiven far more than a few measly billion dollars. The cost you owed was not a 40-year prison sentence. It wasn't a life of slavery. It was an eternity under the wrath of God, separated from peace. And he has forgiven the entirety of the, the infinite debt that we owe. And he has said, if you get that if you grasp the weight of it, forgiveness, it just comes out of our hearts. We can't help but forgive. And so here's the point of this. If you don't ask for forgiveness, if you don't forgive others, you probably don't even know this God I'm talking about. And, and I don't know if you're safe today. I, I don't know that you are forgiven. I think that's his point. And so I tell you, Look upon Jesus, see the forgiveness that he offers freely. It is only looking there that your heart will be melted by his forgiveness. It's only there that your heart will be made alive and you'll be able to stand before these words and say, forgive us our debts as I've forgiven my debtors. I've seen the way you forgive me. How could I hold on to, other, to these bitternesses and sins? How could I hold on to that? So in closing... Search your heart today. Take action. Go to people that need forgiveness and say, I forgive you. Ask for forgiveness if you need it. 
commit to a life of forgiveness. Listen, if, if you're in any relationship, it's like if you're in a marriage, if you're friends with somebody, the reality is you are sinning against each other all the time, like daily, multiple times a day. Half of them we don't even realize. To have a serious relationship with anybody, whether it's with your children, with friends, with your church, with your coworkers, in a marriage, you have to forgive all day, every day. It is what we must do. And so walk in the air of forgiveness and the freedom and beauty of forgiveness today. Live in the shadow of the cross of forgiveness. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would that we would be able to search our hearts today as we utter these words, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Show us, God, if hypocrisy is in our hearts and help us to repent, to walk as ambassadors of forgiveness, melt our hardness of hearts. I ask that as we move into the season of prayer, that you would just make us a people who pray daily for your forgiveness, for forgiveness from one another, that we would offer it freely. Work in our hearts, God. We ask for you to bring revival. Don't let our bitterness or our stubbornness get in the way, Lord. Don't let our unforgiveness hinder our prayers, God. But we ask that you would show us mercy, make our hearts soft, help us believe. In Christ's name, amen.